Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by Bradley Gerrard again. How are you, Bradley? I am good, thanks, John. Re- result season has kicked off with a bang, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, kicked off? Kicked off. It's kind of sparked off. Yeah, yeah. Started. It peaked. Eighty seven, I think I counted this week. Wow. Eighty seven results in our results section. That's a lot of work. Yep, it's been keeping us busy. And uh, Megan Boxall, how are you, Megan? Yeah, very, very well, thank you. Just, Good. Yeah, as well. Been a, been a real peak this week of lots and lots of writing. So I thought Interesting I, stuff, though. I thought I'd escaped all this when I became editor, but what <laughs> I hadn't realised is I have to read every single one of them rather than just write <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, you must have read a lot this week. I've, I've done a lot of reading, a lot of reading. And I also finished yeah. Decline and Fall by Evening War, so uh, <laughs> not been, bad. been getting some leisure reading in as well. Great book. Uh, okay, Bradley, Let's. Uh, we're going to talk about Megan's feature in a minute. Uh, which is a continuation of our Finding the Cure series. And we're going to talk about drug discoverers looking at rare diseases, yep. which are not as rare as the name suggests. Yeah, as, as you might think. A yeah. um, lot, lot of money in that. A lot of money in that. Uh, and, but also, you know, a lot of uh, good work, potentially, because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them are uh, uh, children uh, mm-hmm. suffer these diseases, yeah. particularly. So uh, really interesting, really interesting uh Segments of the biotech and pharmaceutical market, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's start with the news because it's been another interesting week. When isn't it an interesting week these days? It's always interesting, John. But actually, sort of something that's happened today as we record the podcast is probably the most interesting thing, really, because it's the um, the Bank of England has gone and cut interest rates. Um, by not a surprise. Well, you say not a surprise. I mean, it, the market had been positioning itself for just that, but we had been here before with commentators expecting action and nothing had happened but then we've had some dire economic news that yeah. as i say in my editorial there doesn't seem to be anything in in the kind of surveys of consumer confidence or industrial confidence or you know the pmi figures that that suggests that things are going in the direction that we'd like to see absolutely and i guess as well mark carney to a degree obviously it's not just down to him it's down to the you know, the nine strong uh, monetary policy committee but he had a to a degree, painted himself into a corner, I suppose, because his his um, view before Brexit was that it would have an, a dire effect if we voted to leave. So, um, you know, the, the, the Bank of England's economic modelling suggests that we're going to have exceptionally low growth um, throughout the rest of the year. Mm. Um, and, you know, sort of, again, sort of not very good in 2017 either. So the fact they've lowered interest rates is interesting. They've added £70 billion worth onto the quantitative easing pile, and that will include now apparently buying corporate bonds, which really changes the mix of things. And, and mimics what the um, ECB, the European Central Bank, is doing. And they've also committed a hundred billion uh, pound fund to help the banks out, which are obviously very, very affected by another cut in interest rates, which apparently is a 322-year low of the bank rate, according to M&G's uh, bond team. Well, I can well believe it. But, you know, is this another bailout then? Essentially, or, well, or what the, is, the potential for a bailout? Not a bailout. No, what, it, what it's a, what it's aimed at doing. The early commentary suggests is that it's aimed at making sure this rate cut is actually passed on to the real economy because obviously banks are being pretty squeezed at the moment. So what this should enable to happen is banks to be able to borrow very very low rates and then pass the cut on to mortgage customers, but therefore maintaining their their margins. Yeah, I mean, this is some of that Emma mentioned in the feature. Emma Powell, our banking correspondent, mentioned in her feature a few weeks back on the banking sector that is that the, the, the continued low rate environment is, is squeezing that, that all-important net interest margin. Absolutely. And so lower rates, yeah, they're not essentially able to absorb them. So this is designed to help banks absorb that. Effectively, Absorb yeah. this new 
yeah and, and help hopefully pass that rate cut on to the economy because that's effectively what quantitative easing should be doing it but should I, be stimulating proper economic activity but i guess that's one of the criticisms of of the various qe programs around the world is that it hasn't actually filtered through to the real economy no. but if it had then we wouldn't be where we are now well, I was just going to say that that is a very well-respected and much-touted view, but I guess we can never really know. Had we not had QE, would we have had another massive recession without it? It's almost impossible or to say. Or a depression, even. Yeah. So we don't... You can't really... I don't think anyone can really with certainty know what would have happened without QE. But yes, you're right. The, the, um, the effects that it is supposed to uh, create... They're not, they've not been as tangible, I think, as people had hoped they would be. I think that would be fair to say. I mean, I, I read uh, some commentary this week that suggested, you know, some people are starting to think that the whole monetary response to, to weak growth rates uh, has it, it, kind of failed. Mm. Uh, and that actually we should be looking at fiscal responses and, and government industrial policy responses now yep. to actually try and generate growth and we've got and, i think jeremy corbyn's going to talk about a 500 billion pound spending plan or something in his pitch to you know to maintain the leadership of the labor party so something like that yes i mean if the sort of monetary um, measures are not having an effect then arguably you need government to kind of step in We've got very low borrowing rates. The The UK is a very well-respected uh, country. We've got our own currency, which helps in terms of looking to borrow more money. So, And we're, talk, we're talking infrastructure, that, that's in gen- essence, that's, Yeah, that's generally what government spending tends to lead to because it creates a lot of jobs. It creates a lot of productivity and you get something at the end of it, like a school or a hospital or multiple Or a nuclear those, power or, station. Or a nuclear should power we talk, station. Should we talk Hinkley? Let's talk Hinkley. So that was um, one of Theresa May's, I guess, first big decisions, really, I guess, in kind of, um, well, it's not a decision. It's a sort of gently pressing the brake pedal, I suppose, on what is the Hinkley uh, Point C project. Um, she's basically wanted to take um, a bit of a closer look at it. And there were a lot of reports in the press was centred around um, the fact that she was a little bit concerned about China's involvement, mm-hmm. which is... Slightly ironic, given that we're supposed to be um, you know, an open door country, very willing to accept foreign investment. Yeah, I, mean, I think the the view there is that one of her uh, key advisors, mm. a guy called Nick Timothy, yep. has has some quite serious concerns about the security implications of handing over our energy generating infrastructure, and particularly our nuclear energy generating infrastructure, to Chinese ownership. And I've got, I mean, me personally, I've got a big stake in this because I don't live far from from a, a proposed site which will be wholly owned by the Chinese. Yeah, I mean, I, that that concern is probably a very valid one. And um, I mean, it has come from you know, you know, people in the security services yeah. have, have have put this viewpoint forward. But if that's if that's going to um, sort of colour our nuclear strategy, then I guess what needs to happen is coming back to what we just said: is if the Chinese aren't going to be allowed to do it, or we're not going to let them, and you know, is a UK is the UK going to pay for this? I mean, is the taxpayer, is the government? How, how are we going to fund this? And maybe if the government funded it, it would be a remarkable success. It would create more growth or whatever have you, and, and increase energy security in the future. But I mean, I guess I guess most people's issue, you know, if they if you don't want to indulge in the kind of James Bond esque security type fantasies, which some people may think this is, yep. that you know, the, the big objection most people have to Hinkley Point is the price at which the electricity will be sold yeah i mean by by edf the french company who's building it and and obviously the chinese investors in that project it's a high strike price so you know what, what's the cost of it 30 billion over its lifetime yeah i mean, I uh, mean if we're talking 500 billion pound infrastructure funds well 30 billion is nothing really in that uh, and if if you can then 
provide energy security at lower price. Surely that's better than handing it over to, to uh, foreign investors. Yeah, you're 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 quite right. I mean, you're you're probably exactly right. But I guess then you've got the pro- the question of if the country does borrow a huge amount of money in which to fund infrastructure projects. Notionally, that's fine, but there is the market will react to it. It, it might have a very sort of um, passive reaction that ex- expresses the fact that it's not really bothered that much. Where it might sort of, if it sees the UK levering up its balance sheet again, and we spent the past five or six years, you know, to borrow a George Osborne phrase like fixing the roof while the sun's shining, kind of thing, then, which he didn't really do. Well, but no, he didn't. <laughs> but we were banging on let's about not split hairs. No, but we were banging on about it for long enough. Um, I mean, maybe I guess it would just be up to the Conservative government to sort of quietly say, yeah, okay, that policy didn't really work, did it? So let's just keep borrowing, um, and maybe the market would be fine. But th- mm. that, that's the that's the issue, I suppose, is that you could create uncertainty if a lot of uh, foreign investors take flight from the UK, and then we do rely an awful lot on foreign direct investment. That's true, although there's plenty to suggest that, uh, you know, Hinkley aside, it won't cause a drying up of investment from China in the UK. We're an attractive market, an attractive country to invest in for various reasons. Um, I mean, let's talk about the stock market impact of this. I mean, mm. there, there must be some guys who had a lot of stake uh, in, in this project going ahead who now... Perhaps there's a lot more uncertainty around them. Yeah, absolutely. So I had there's there's a a nib um, in the news section on this, and um, I mean just some of the big companies, uh, some big listed players like Rolls Royce, Balfour BT, Babcock International, and G4S are just some of the huge listed companies that have an interest in Hinkley Point C going through um, without any trouble. Um, I mean, nuclear for Rolls Royce is only six percent of revenue, so we can't claim that it's going to be sort of a a huge concern for them, but it, it will be a worry in in respect of the tough sort of 12 18 months Rolls Royce has had and um, I mean Balfour Beatty is a preferred bidder on a uh, 460 million pound electrical contract for the site so that's not small change either you know it's a decent slug of mm. money even though that you know Balfour is a, a very large company so there are some big um, contracts that UK companies you know want to fulfill and obviously because they'll be profitable for them and I guess yeah if the whole China EDF thing went off the rails and UK government appropriated it, I mean, these companies are very likely to get the work because they're British companies, but they have actually been chosen as it stands as preferred bidders by EDF, effectively. So. Right. It's a fascinating story. I'm sure it's got a long way to run. Oh, um, I reckon it has. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, another interesting story in the news section, uh, which you wrote, Megan. Mm. GSK teaming up with Google Bioelectronics. Yeah. I mean, something we haven't really written about much before. Well, what, it wasn't something what, I even really knew existed. What are bioelectronics? Well, it's pretty much splitting up those two words, a bit of a mixture between the biology, the medicine, the science in that respect, and the electronic science, which so, is what Google's an absolute genius But in. what are we talking about? What we're talking about is what are what have been described by the man who's going to be the chairman of this company as miniaturised implants the size of a grain of rice, which you put into, you insert into the body and have the, hopefully, have the ability to stimulate the nervous system, which has a major, plays a major role in a lot of chronic diseases, asthma, diabetes. Um, and that's all been proven that the nervous system does have a role in these in these diseases, but it's never been used to help treat it before. There have been some sort of successes in the world of bioelectronics. Actually, Google was involved a few years ago in a in a venture to do with contact lenses about 
creating a contact lens using its electronic expertise. It mm-hmm. now belongs to Swiss, the Swiss pharmaceutical company Novartis. And they're using that contact lens to help monitor diabetes and glucose levels in the body. Um, so that's an example of a bioelectronic product which has actually done quite well. But what GSK is hoping to do in, in this joint venture is to go that one step further and actually insert things into the body um, which could effectively be treatments or even cures for some diseases which currently there are treatments but once you've got diabetes you've got diabetes there's no cure um same with asthma and that, it's all very speculative at the moment but there it's a sort of new world of uh of medical treatments which sounds extremely exciting but yeah it's all very speculative at the moment there's yeah. some serious cash though behind it i mean 540 million pounds between the pair of them has been put in i mean i know on the scale of pharmaceuticals it's you know, it could be larger but it's not it's not a small amount of cash so yeah speculative mm. but i guess they've got a bit of belief in this uh, we, we've been talking about this this trend for a while the the the, the merging of the the kind of data mm. world and and the, the the kind of biological world yeah. it's, it's it's generally been about about how you use you know big data to help drug discovery but this is kind of a step beyond it's science fiction yeah, almost. yeah it is it's uh it's crazy actually the, the example that um was used was how bioelectronics has previously helped people with bionic limbs control these limbs using their mind so even though that limb isn't part of you it feels like it's part of you because your mind can control it wow and that is just like you say almost science fiction it's amazing well steve austin here we come it's remarkable isn't it steve austin steve austin oh i knew i'd catch out with that one the the bionic man oh sorry sorry my cultural (laughs) i'm showing my age my cultural reference (laughs) library didn't have that (laughs) available to me i'm afraid Oh, I knew you wouldn't know that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Uh, I'm, I'm grey. Right, um, okay, let's talk about the banks because it's been an interesting week for the banks. It's our lead story. Yep. Big stress tests across the banking sector in Europe, which really highlighted the weakness of one particular bank, Monte dei Pasha di Siena. A good Italian, yeah. Not bad, yep. not bad. Which is the weakest bank in Europe by a mile. Yeah. And has been recapitalised, I think, for the third time. But the the general news across the, the banking sector is that most of them passed, but, but some people are casting aspersions on the the uh, veracity of these tests. Yeah, they are. So um, the, there were tests um, previously which were carried out by the uh, European Banking uh, Authority, and they had a sort of they had a pass fail mark. So they basically they they looked at the level of tier one equity capital that a bank had. They um, overlaid a stressful situation upon that bank, and then they decided that what point then they decided where the capital ratio would fall to this most recent test had no pass fail mark so while there's a positive in the fact that the banks are clearly more capitalized and were very well able to deal with the stress tests in differing degrees obviously and the italian bank you mentioned did not deal very well with them um but yeah there's the adam smith institute um durham university's professor kevin dowd um says that they lack credibility because of what i just said really um and he's not really sure that they're a sufficient barometer with which to actually gauge how banks can under would undergo a stressful situation well he said we're sleepwalking into a banking crisis worse than layman yeah i mean that's that's pretty scary it is pretty scary he's obviously a respect a respected commentator and will have done some you know some very um thoughtful work on this as well so i mean it is very scary um I, I guess to counter that that bearishness, you do have these capital ratios. But I suppose, uh, going back to in his court, 
it's pointless saying that the capital ratios are fine under a stress test if the stress test is not significant enough. Mm, mm. So it's really impossible uh, or very, very difficult to kind of know from the outside, um, you know, really, really how stressful these tests were. Because obviously the authorities that carry them out will always insist they were robust and take into account the current threats that they perceive to be possible. But then obviously you have someone like, you know, Professor uh, Dowd who thinks that actually that, that's, you know, they're, they're not good enough. They haven't really tested the banks for what they might well have to undergo given the situation we're finding ourselves ourselves in which is you know subdued global growth yeah economies needing constant stimulus to keep going and, and to, you know to me this doesn't feel like a, a brexit induced problem this feels like no. something much more fundamental yeah that. it was it was here before before we got to brexit i think brexit just kind of was a stressful situation along the you know, many, many other stressful situations that are going on. I mean, we've got a US election in November, which people are going to be a bit stressed about given the, the two candidates who are running and the very different sort of potential outcomes of uh, what happens to that economy, but I mean, judging I, by the winner. I, for my, I mentioned this in my editorial, but I only look at Deutsche Bank share price. I mean, they're down to two thirds in a year. Yeah, it's I mean, remarkable. It's, I mean, that's worse than the British banks. And the British banks haven't exactly been sterling performers. I mean, it's... No. Um, no so, it's, so this is a broad problem it's a huge problem and um you know you're you're seeing i mean it's it's hard to say the banks look extremely healthy because of this test when you've got obviously as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast you've got a, a massive 100 billion pounds for the bank of england to help them deal with this very tough interest rate environment for the banks mm. you've got the fca i believe it was earlier this week talking about extending the deadline for ppi claims and banks thought they had that done and dusted come 2018 now it's probably going to be 2019 i mean there isn't a let up for the banks there's not much there's still not much good news flying around apart from they are in better shape than they were pre-crisis and you do have people like Lloyd's who've returned to the dividend roster and will want to defend that um, you know, as much as is possible. Yeah, terrifying stuff. I mean, this is genuinely terrifying stuff. I'm, I'm more sanguine about some of the PMI stuff we're seeing, um, some of the consumer confidence uh, surveys that we're seeing. I mean, it's, that's natural. And, you know, when I looked at those charts of UK PMI, manufacturing services, of consumer confidence, I mean, it was on a downward trajectory long before yeah, the referendum. It was. And, and yes, there was a very sharp drop off then, but things have been weakening for a while. You know, I don't think, it, personally, I don't think it's very helpful to blame everything on, on Brexit and the referendum vote because actually yeah, I think there are much more fundamental things that need to be addressed. That's just my view. No, it's absolutely true. There are very, very big trends that even even the sort of something like internet shopping i mean the effect that's having on the high street that that didn't come about because of brexit it's been around for a long time it's continuing mm. and you know winners and losers there will be from that race i mean yeah london property which i mentioned in my my leader yeah london property has been coming off the boil for a long time yeah and it a long time has risen a long way so house, it builders, sense. house builders have you know the sector having risen a long way has started to come off the ball, but long before the, the, the impact of the referendum vote. Yep. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of moving parts that we need to take into account here. And, uh, I concur. It's all a bit scary, but scary is one thing. Uh, don't give up altogether because your alternative is put your money in a bank account, get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> or, well, if there's any inflation, get less than nothing. Get less than nothing. Get less or at least nothing. get reduced purchasing power, I suppose, would be the correct phrase. Indeed. Before we move on to Megan's feature, is there anything else, Bradley, that that particularly struck you in the uh, news section this week? I mean, I guess sort of um, uh, a relatively like, consumery story is the fact that obviously Ofgem... Boo! <laughs> <laughs> well, you might not boo them now. They're, they're going to allow energy companies um, to basically market directly to their rivals' customers once those customers have been on, a, on what is often an expensive 
default tariff for three years to encourage them to switch because apparently two-thirds of energy customers are um, disengaged. Do you know how much you pay for your energy? I absolutely do because I switch regularly. Do you really? Honestly. And how do you judge this? Because I can't work out energy bills for love nor money. You just go on to... I, I've said this several times before. They're probably going to pay me a commission soon, but just go on a U-Switch or another comparison site. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a late adopter of comparison sites. It's not difficult, honestly. It won't take you very long. You just have, have to put in how many giga medoofies you use per month or how much you spend and away it goes and searches and yeah, but that's what I struggle to work out honestly I'm not I'm not stupid right? no I'm not I look, I look, thanks Bradley <laughs> I look at those bills and it's like I can't it's just all over the place I think they you, are all over the place they, they are. are not transparent but you in, must know you must be able to easily find out how much you pay on your direct debit a month just by looking at your yeah, bank direct statement. debit means nothing because I've been overpaying that for months and I've got a new boiler which kind of threw, threw, threw everything out of kilter because it's obviously much more efficient than my old boiler of course it's, it's just madness anyway I reckon you can navigate <laughs> the difficulty of a utility bill to find out how much oh, energy you use honestly god I, haven't if, I got enough going on in my life if so I can do it you can do it <laughs> why don't they just all have a reasonable price because that would be a cartel. <laughs> well, they can see each other. They don't have to collude to, to see each other's pricing or to know what they're paying for gas and put it on a fair margin. I don't know. Anyway, uh, may- anyway, maybe in three years' time, you'll get an email from somebody and you'll be thankful that I told you about this story. I will, Bradley. I will. You might <laughs> save me some money. I'm pretty sure I'm overpaying. But, uh, but I'm also, sure. I've got so much else to sweat out of my life that... Uh, that's why, obviously, two-thirds of customers of energy companies are disengaged. All right. Um, listen, before we go on to uh, the feature, which we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, should we talk about a couple of results uh, mm. that you've uh, you've both written this week? It has been busy. As I say, there's been 87 results in the magazine, along with all the other tip updates, news and tips, and blah, 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 and what else we have. At random, pick out something that you've covered this week, Bradley, that you thought was interesting. I'll throw it out to the audience. Um, I, I guess I'll, uh, I'll choose a couple of things, actually, I think. That... I like the Diageo piece, yeah. but only for the photo, Bradley. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Derek Zoolander yeah. drinking some kind of expensive Diageo vodka. It is. It's a. It's a great picture. Um, yeah, I mean Diageo, obviously the multinational distiller. There, I guess a very interesting sort of aspect of their results was that they're sort of six global giant brands, as they call them, which include the likes of Smirnoff vodka, Captain Morgan rum. Really did very well for the group. Um, those six brands account for forty percent of net sales, and sales of those grew three percent in the in the period, which is the year to thirtieth uh, of June, twenty sixteen. So it's quite an interesting thing that obviously those big, well-known brands have had a bit of stability this year. I think that's quite an interesting sort of point to make. And yeah, might might sort of um, help. Uh, or might inform you know an investor's decision if they're looking for a kind of a an alcohol-based stock to add to their portfolio. Brands are powerful, and it's yeah. actually something we talked about in uh, our understanding investment in fifty objects series this week. Uh, we're talking about the Big Mac and uh, Imperial Leather Soap and what they represent to investors. Really worth a read. There, I, cu- I couldn't possibly do them justice in a thirty-second roundup, but no, they re- really are about the power of brands and the value that brands bring to uh, to companies. And I, I guess that Adagio is a perfect example. Yeah, I mean, it's really brought to the fore in these results. Um, and another interesting trend, which I'll mention very briefly, is that actually the the more developed markets, things like Western Europe, um, North America, did very well. And it was actually emerging markets where there was a bit of a struggle. And for the past couple of years, that's kind of been the counter. We've is, seen. The, is, it, is this the old China gift? giving clampdown effects still or i don't know maybe but i mean um 
there was weakness in China. Organic volumes fell four percent, five percent. Bigger pardon there, and also Nigeria, which is obviously you know uh. oil exporting country. The currency is going through a torrid time. Well, Nigeria has been a problem for one of your other companies, Pisa Cousins, as well. Yeah, right? it has, yeah. especially the exchange rate movements there. Yeah, exactly. Um, Nigeria is a big, uh, big slugger. Pisa Cousins' is revenue. So yeah, they've. Um, Pizza been, Cousins are also making Peel Leather, which is do. in a... Uh, gosh, we, it all just does so so Connected world, world here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, so um, you know, Nigeria is obviously having a tough time, and that's that's definitely represented in the Agile Yeah, results. I mean, again, you know, just to, to say, that's, there's a big currency problem there. And, and the mm. cover feature, which we're not going to talk about in this podcast because it's too complicated, um, is uh, about currency. Yeah. and how you look at currency uh, as a component of analysing a company's performance. It's so complicated. And I think James Longton has done a fantastic job of trying to get to grips with that. I think it's much more complicated than the kind of narrative we've had post-referendum suggests. Oh, yeah. they've got some dollar earnings, therefore the price should go up. It's really not that simple. No, I mean, that that might be the, the simple outcome, but mm. the, uh, the the equation is not that simple. Not Absolutely. It's not as simple Many as that. Reasons. And James, has, as you say, has done a very good job of that. And very quickly, I guess, um, a key uh, one to mention is Reckitt Benkiser, um, which makes things like, um, you know, I think Detal and Dirix condoms, those kind of things. Um, they booked a £300 million um, exceptional charge, basically, for um, a fairly long-running story linked to some um, injuries and possible deaths in South Korea, from um, which was linked to um, a, humid- a humidifier sanitization product. Um, Reckitt wasn't the only company selling that product in the market, but basically South Korea's government did a big study into the impact of this humidifier sanitation products and um Reckitt's basically I mean doing its best to you know make make good of a very bad and tragic situation really the share price looks all right to me which just goes to show the power of brands yeah exactly as we said so um, it's got some very strong well-known brands and it is a bit of a staple I mean um things like um you know house cleaner and those Silit sorts of bang. Silit bang who doesn't exactly. have a squirty thing of Silit bang well it, precisely so it is the sort of company that's very very big it has a lot of products that people will will keep using in spite of economic conditions and they're obviously very well placed to deal with some of the biggest retailers um, around the world so yeah. mm, well, there you go interesting yeah not a nice story but no story. i mean yeah the, the results were overshadowed obviously obviously by this um, mm. big uh, compensation uh, amount that it's gonna that it has booked but i mean on the call you know the company was obviously just saying they've made an awful lot of effort to try and make sure they're dealing with this in the most fair way and that the compensation amount and level is fair and just doing the best they can really it's a historic issue they're dealing with it now okay megan let's talk about uh some of your results uh before yeah. we go into your your great feature some of the big farmers have reported this yeah week. yeah so uh astrazeneca and shire this week gsk last week um so comparing the three is actually really interesting but um of the three i think shire is currently the ic's favorite of the the big big three farmer it's had um recently completed its acquisition of Baxalta, which is the u.s company um 32 billion dollars which really uh which got a few investors nervous because it's such a massive acquisition but uh the interim results they said it's all integrating fine and everything's going according to plan Baxelta contributed a fair amount of money just over 500 500 million in these results so that was uh that was helpful as well to them and it's all it's all just looking really really good for shire um mm. the share prices has uh has been really soaring the last few months all of um, the f- big farmer share prices have been soaring. they have well they've all had a real Brexit boost, Brexit, Brexit vo- boost. boost. It's just all been. Uh, everyone's been turning to them because, well, Astra and uh, GSK pay pay high uh, high dividends, and there's also the argument that their 
products are not going to be out of use just because we're in a recession or whatever economic state we might be we're always going to need drugs indeed um, well they're brand they are brands too essentially oh, just yeah, not brands that, they're not household name type brands no. they're brands that are well known amongst the the uh, medical practitioners yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. Uh, prescribe them mm-hmm. so yeah so astra Same as well principle. yeah astrazeneca as well doing doing pretty well they um well not doing very well numbers wise um but we already knew that 2016 was going to be tough for AstraZeneca. They've seen a lot of their brands um, fall off the patent, um, which has been really difficult for them. They've that's losing huge amounts of revenue. And this year they saw Cresta, which is their, which was one of their big blockbuster drugs, um, had lost its patent. So earnings were down, but everyone still loved it. The yeah, share this, price was up seven percent on the day of the result. This, this is what my dad. I'm going to have to apologise to my dad live on air because the day before the referendum, he said to me. I'm thinking about buying AstraZeneca. I said, don't do that. All their drugs are falling off a patent cliff. And, <laughs> and since then, I think they're up about 15%. So sorry, Dad. <laughs> you were right. But I look at those, you know, exactly what you're saying. And I think, why? Why? Yeah, the thing with why Astra... Why are people looking at here and saying, yeah, I want, I want a bit of that? Mm, the thing with Astra, I think, is that they have got a massive pipeline of drugs. Not as big as Shire's. Yeah, a pipeline's a pipeline. Um, I mean, yeah, not... but when it's, a, when it's as big as it is and when it's as innovative as it is, I think that's that's what we, we, we've been talking about this today, actually, um, about investing in pharmaceuticals is investing in the future. You're not investing in the products that are already there. You're investing in what they are going to put out there in the next few years. And so Astra, Astra's pipeline has looked a lot more attractive than GSK's had for a long time because it has been investing so much money in research and development. But there's nothing to say that any of those treatments are going to no, get that's... through. But I guess you're buying the the uh, the kind of diversification. Yeah, there's yeah. so many that one of them is bound to come exactly. off and, and be a, and that's a the billion, problem billion with, dollar drug. Yeah, that's the problem with small cap pharma. When you've got one drug, um, then yeah, the risks of that not coming off are pretty pretty high. But when AstraZeneca's got a huge pipeline, then mm. they're going to have going to have a few of those going through. Yeah. But like I say, not as big as Shires, who uh, their their chief executive, who is a real character, said on um, said on the media call, it's probably the biggest pipeline of any pharmaceutical company in the world. And is that true? We don't know, but that's what he thinks. It probably Fair he is definitely an optimistic man. So, uh, so, so let's let's turn to your to your uh, your feature, yeah. which is about rare diseases. Mm-hmm. And as it happens, Shire through mm. its acquisition of Baxalta is kind of well positioned in this space yeah um well it was anyway um it is always focused on rare okay. diseases um but its acquisition of baxalta has made it into what it thinks is potentially the biggest pharm- pharmaceutical company specializing in rare diseases in the world that is again based on its pipeline rather than what the drugs that are currently on the market are so, so let's talk you know rare diseases mm. doesn't sound that lucrative but and we're talking about here illnesses that are suffered by you know one in twenty thousand people, yep. but I guess the point you're you're making is that twenty thousand people in the in the in the you know scaled up to a global population is yeah. a huge number of people. So they're called rare diseases, but they're suffered by many people. Yeah, and there are so many of them as well. That's the other thing. There are seven thousand different defined types of rare disease, and they're just the ones that are defined. There are so many as well, which don't even have a name yet, which people are suffering from. So when you combine all the different types of rare diseases, it's a lot of people who have one of them, um, mm. and in most cases, there is not a cure. And in a lot of cases, there isn't even a treatment. And yeah, like I say, in some cases, there isn't even a name. So it's a really it's a really sad part of medicine, rare diseases, because it's just an uphill battle. It's never 
going to be gone. Like you can say, oh, we're going to, we could cure cancer. You're never going to cure all rare diseases. There are too many of them. But there are some companies that are making huge advances. And it's down to a lot, thanks to this um, Orphan Drug Act, which came in in the 80s in America, which has made it a lot more, a lot more lucrative for pharmaceutical companies to actually invest in rare disease drugs. Orphan drugs is what they're called. Um, and it's made, it's made so many more companies really interested in doing it. Um, they get longer patents, uh, which is a big thing, as we've seen from AstraZeneca. And they get fast-tracked through the um, FDA or the EC, the, whoever the, government, the approval body is. They, the drugs get fast-tracked through that. So it's, uh, it, it's become a really lucrative market, which is why there are so many companies now really putting a lot of money in. And, and I noticed, you know, going through the, uh, the feature, a lot of them uh, are called something therapeutics. <laughs> This is because the, the the method by which they're attempting to to find these cures is is based on gene therapies. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them. That it's been a real turn, turning point for rare diseases. Um, that our knowledge of genetics has been huge. Because um, now we know what causes a lot of the diseases. Cystic fibrosis is one of them. Um, ALS, which is the Stephen Hawking. Um, illness. I thought it was Mosin Neuro disease. It's the same thing. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> They've got two different names. <laughs> um, okay. Um, yeah, they they know the gene. They can specifically see that gene, which is incredible because that now they know that targeting that gene and hopefully turning around that gene and making it like normal people's or people who don't have an illness, like their genes, then those people can be cured, which could be incredible for, for those different people. Yeah, and so, and so there are a number of UK companies. So there's some very successful US companies, yeah, yeah. Um, some, which you mentioned. Yeah, some US company. The US is definitely closer to commercialising gene therapy at the moment. It's just not commercial. There've been some good stories. There've been some people who've been cured by gene therapy, but it's been like single digits in a trial rather than a big enough trial to say actually we can commercialise this. But yeah, in the UK there's a few who are who are doing all right. Um, Renewron is one of them, who actually incidentally had a good update today. Their one of their trials has been published in the Lancet, which is a very prestigious medical journal, and that's uh, that's given them another boost. Their share price was up again today. And what are, um, what are they doing specifically? So yeah, it's, it's it's gene therapy, it's stem cell treatments, and they are looking at stroke disability and critical. Ishima. And the other one is Oxford Biomedica, um, which, yeah, the other one I, I've mentioned, um, which is looking, it's it's very interesting, this one, because the prob- a big problem with gene and cell therapies is that when you put these n- new cells into a body, they, the body can often attack them. Because um, they're introduced via a virus, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, uh, most of the time at the moment they're introduced via, via a virus, yeah. And it is it does make the body's natural immune system is obviously going to try and attack that virus. And in some cases it can cause an illness that's worse than the actual original disease. But what Oxobiomedica are doing is trying to insert these new cells or genes into the body using a different method. I couldn't explain it to you. Um, it's very complicated. I'm sure some science. of our readers can, because <laughs> um, we know we've got we some do. very well-qualified readers yes, in this area. Yes, we do. Who, um, who keep us on our toes. They, <laughs> they certainly do. Um, but it's great to have that kind of feedback. Because Indeed. It's uh, good to know about the in-depth science, which, yeah, it is. It's really, really impressive what they're doing. And, yeah, hopefully that will then not only get rid of the problem of cures causing further disease but also help cure the original disease so yeah. i mean it's, it's amazing all exciting stuff no it's, it's amazing i mean and, and also you mentioned i think this is quite interesting in the context of the very first uh, finding the cure mm. feature that we published which was about cancer yeah um you know and we often hear headlines about cancer cured mm. and you know we were kind of the whole reason we did this was to say well 
it's much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what it all really means. And actually, cancer, you know, the reason there is no cure for cancer is because it is in itself many diseases. So many different types. And, yeah. and so, and some of them are very rare. Yeah, so a lot this, of them are very rare, especially blood cancers, which is there's so much research into blood can- different types of blood cancer at the moment. And it is one of those, it is that is an illness where this gene and cell therapy is coming so close to what you could call a cure. But yeah, like you say, it's just for that one type rather than all the different types of, mm. of cancer. But uh, yeah, Juno Therapeutics is the interesting one in, in this field. It's, it, is a, it is a US firm, but it's really been making huge leaps. But unfortunately, some of its patients died recently um, because of the treatment rather than the actual illness which is really shocking. But um, the FDA have said, actually said, it's fine, carry on, um, because what you're doing is so close to what could be called a... That's very, in, very enlightened of them. I thought, it, I mean, you know, is. generally speaking, you think of these, these uh, you know, kind of regulatory bodies as being risk averse. That's... Well, that's the thing. And I think that's why everyone was quite surprised. They had, they had to cancel the trial for about three days. And then the FDA said, actually, no, you're fine. You just carry on. And they've had to change the delivery method a little mm. bit. But um, the bottom line is they're carrying on and normally in normal circumstances a, a failure like that would be game over but it's 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 so exciting and so close to a cancer a rare cancer cure that um yeah they're carrying on so a lot of a lot of interesting small companies in the space but also a lot of interesting big companies and we have got a little a little extract about the fact that the biggest companies are the ones making the like shire, real, like shire yeah um and novartis that's great. Well, thank you, Meg. I mean, I, I love these features. I, I don't understand half of them, but uh, I mean, I get it's a really complicated area to invest in. I mean, there are yeah. some, there is some money to be made from all this, well, but it's absolutely. just hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to, to and it's predict hard to which, find uh, what the, yeah predict which, well, which could, where the money could indeed. be. Indeed, but but no, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think you do a, a great job of kind of cutting cutting through the science to kind of laymanize it as yeah. it were, to at least give us a chance of understanding what's going on. Um, yeah, amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Okay. Right. Wow. Time's up. Time's up. Time's up. We've uh, discussed an awful lot, but nowhere near as much as we could have done. I guess you'll just have to go away and read the magazine. <laughs> or subscribe. Or subscribe, as we always say. Loads more in it. Um, we've got another, as I say, another feature on currency. We have Philip's Philips, uh, 50 Object Series. Uh, lots in the personal finance fund section, which they will discuss on the, their own podcast tomorrow. Uh, the usual tips. Lots of comment um also comment this week on uh, executive pay from paul jackson our, our regular comment commentator on this particular issue uh which is very hot at the moment yeah it has been in recent months hasn't it well, well, the, the, the the May, May, and... yeah theresa may's been talking about this as well so uh, yep. i think it's something that we need to keep a close eye on we've been covering it for a long long time when perhaps it's been a bit neglected property comment from jonas um on the housing crisis which doesn't look like it's going anywhere fast it's a huge issue. Getting I'm a lot of your money this week. You really are. A whole £4.70, uh, which is less than a pint uh, in London. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, thank you, Bradley, and thank you, Megan, um, and thank you all for listening, and we'll be back again next week. See you later. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.